It's gone sideways. Right, well, let's let's kick into it. So, Gail, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, as I was saying to you before we started recording, uh, at the moment, the Shit's Gone Sideways podcast has been uh, mainly either crime stories or it has been people talking about um, major health complications that they've had in their life and how they recovered from those or religious stories. And when it's come to religious stories, it seems like the organization, the nonprofit organization that you work with, Recovering from Religion, seems to have a bit of a monopoly on these <laughs> <laughs> stories, right? I guess, I guess I'm proud of that. <laughs> of these fascinating stories. So, uh, yes, we've had already Sasha D'Souza and we've had Naomi Mura on and they've talked about their experiences um, with how um, how growing up in the Jehovah's Witness community, um, kind of what that was like and, and also their life since leaving that. Um, it's also interesting to have someone on to talk about religious experiences, which is not from um, Jehovah's Witness at all, but um, from Southern Baptists. Now, I, I must admit, I know absolutely nothing about <laughs> <laughs> Southern Baptists. Um, I know far too much. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, were you were you raised? Were you born into oh, yes. Southern Baptist? Oh yes, yes. yes. That's uh, for generations, for mm-hmm. generations back. So it was just an accepted lifestyle. And where did you grow up? In the southeast United States, yep. mostly in Georgia. Yeah. Yeah. And big family. Um, a couple of brothers, yep. but we were um, we were in church every time the doors were open. That's everybody's pedigree is that every time the doors were open in the church, you're there. What? So what, it's every day of the week? It's open. No, it's mostly Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday, and then there's always an additional night for a small group Bible study in someone's home. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's pretty consuming lifestyle. And what were the other rules that we would surprise us outside Well, of. this was a, do you know what I mean? It's maybe an American expression. Do you know what being a teetotaler is? I don't Non-drinker. Think, yeah, non-drinker. No alcohol at all. Or the, the joke was Baptists don't drink with other Baptists. And so, yes, there was drinking, but it was completely prohibited by mm. the religion. Um, and then a conservative <laughs> lifestyle. No, you, you know, you, there was, it's a narrow path to conformity. You can't you can't uh, divert off of that path. You need to be normal. You need to be heterosexual. You need, you know, there's a whole lot of things. No sexual activity before marriage. All of the usual controlling religious rules was part of the Southern Baptist lifestyle. Um, but was it f- for you at the time? Was it still an unhappy upbringing? You would- in the context of mm. what, when you're living in that lifestyle and mm. when you're conforming, yeah. you feel like you're in a happy lifestyle. You're getting those dopamine hits of um, approval from your community. You're doing yeah. the right thing. You're there in church. You're you're doing work in the church that you're supposed to do. It feels happy. Mm. It feels good to conform. It feels good to have that stroking of what you're doing. Yeah. You don't spend a lot of time reflecting on what other things could I be doing? You just don't do that. You just don't. You don't have the time or the inclination or the interest to reflect on that. What about at school? Were you associating with people that want, weren't from Southern Baptist? There would have been a variation on the theme in this in the southeastern United States. It's a highly religious place. So while they may not have been Southern Baptist, they were certainly religious. I did not know people who were not religious when I was a child. When I was a young adult. Throughout my child, my children's you know childhood, I just didn't, I wasn't exposed to people who right. were non-believers. So there wasn't that able, there wasn't that scope to have conversations with other kids who were like, your life seems crazy no, compared to mine. None of that, none yeah. of that, pers- none of that kind of perspective. No. And then, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so so how the t- shit goes sideways? Yeah. Well, so I had um, I have a big family. I have four children, and I had all four of them in three years. I threw doubles the last time, so I had four children in three years. Awesome! Wow. I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend it for everybody, but I loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved raising them. I loved taking care of them. I loved doing the home. We were very traditional. My my then husband was um, first. He was a military pilot, and then he was a commercial pilot, and we were as square as it gets. And he was Southern Baptist. And as well? And he was Southern Baptist mm-hmm. as well. And we were bringing the children up in the church in in every leadership role we could possibly have. How, how did you guys meet? You and your husband at a Baptist summer camp. That checks out. Yeah, uh-huh. it does, doesn't it? Tracks. <laughs> so, <laughs> so so life was good. We were we were bringing the children up, teaching them the Bible stories. 
doing everything that we were supposed to do. And when those four children, as I said, they were close in age, when they got to be young teenagers, 12 and 13, they came to me with, and I expected them to come to me with these questions, with normal religious teenager questions. Every every religious teenager asks it in some context, questioning the anti-science in the Bible, you know, the the, the boat with all the animals and the 6,000-year-old earth, and then some some immoral Bible passages about um, when God would command a group of Israelites to go and take land and to keep the young women for your treasure. Or there mm. was even one passage in Numbers about bashing the infants' heads on rocks because when you, ta- when you overtake a land, God commands you to completely overtake it. There's passages like that in the Bible, which you don't ever hear about. But no. <laughs> And my kids came to me and I said, children, you're right. Now, this was... I'm 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 sort of condensing it. This was over a long period of time. We had a, we would have a family Bible study, and as I said, my my then husband was a commercial airline pilot, so he wasn't always there for the Bible study. Sure. So but do we you think th- in your head when they're asking these questions that you had because of your upbringing, you had been trained in the answers uh-huh, to provide? Uh-huh, uh-huh. The, so I these... gave them the answers. Mm. I said, "Children, good question and good thinking," because I had taught these children. I. I, I it, it was an exception, but I valued education. I highly valued education. I had had an undergraduate degree. My then-husband was an educated person, and I did va- value education. So when these children reached these, had these questions, I was proud of them for answer, asking, and I said, we're going to find the answers. So the p- first place we went was within what I call within the bubble. We went to our youth minister and our pastor and our Sunday school teacher, and we asked those questions. Religion has answers to those questions. They're terrible answers. Mm. Uh, they're very unsatisfying, but they are some kind of answer to it. It's God's ways are higher than our ways. There are things about about God we'll never understand. And then you're supposed to go, oh, and let it go and move on with your life. That's right. You're supposed to give some that's, vague answer that's and right. then we just move on. Yes, to, and then right. we just move on. And my kids were, hell no. that It was just not enough. And I said, okay, well, let's keep asking our questions. I engaged my husband at the time, and I said, the kids are asking these questions, and I'm struggling with it a little bit. We've met with our youth pastor, and he said, you are playing with fire. told me that was the expression he used, you're playing with fire. And he was, ultimately, he ended up being right. But it was just funny that he didn't even want me to entertain the questions. Yeah. Because so, I guess he's, you know. I mean, what's the deal? Your kids are just far too inquisitive for their I own know. good. <laughs> That's the joke. That's what we said. <laughs> Stupid kids asking all these questions. So they were, up, as I said, I'm condensing the story down, but over the course of the years now, they were starting high school. They were becoming young, you know, young, older teenagers, middle-aged teenagers, and they were starting high school. They were being exposed to people with different beliefs. Mm. Our little small elementary school, everybody was exactly the same, but even in the South, it was a little bit of just somebody different at the high school, and they were starting to be exposed to that. And in the meantime, we were reading things. We studied a little bit about anthropology and philosophy and other religions. And boy, once you crack the bubble, once you crack or break the seal, it was it was um, it was inevitable. And each of my children, each one according to their personality and their birth order, they were not as vested in me, so they were ready. They were just unex- – this is unacceptable. They are not going – my my oldest son, uh, he – he <laughs> I tell a little bit of a story about him. His was all wrapped around sexuality, and he yeah. was uh, – he was – he discovered what sex was, and the idea that we would not want him to do that was more than he could take. My second son was <laughs> more – <laughs> Right? Right? So – and my second son was more cerebral, and he did more of the study. One of my daughters – she said it has nothing to do with whether or not it's true. I could care less if it's true or not. It's immoral. It's a terrible system. It's a it's a tribal system where you only protect and care about the people that believe the same way you do and not outside of that. So each one of them had their own reasons. Yeah, wow. It wasn't so, like they were all conspiring together. No, no they and they make their, their pro- they were making their progress on their own. My husband was it was conflict was building in the marriage because he was holding me accountable for having let them ask these questions and entertaining them and try so so shit started to go sideways so the children were ready to walk away and and each one as they got old enough to say i'm not going to church i'm not going to believe this they started doing that and then they launched off into their lives so over those years 
as they made that as they made their decisions and i was becoming more and more panicked because they were the only other people they were the only people i knew that didn't believe that i had ever had any exposure to so as they started to leave me and i know i'm and and i want them to launch i want them to do their lives and yet mm-hmm. at the same time i am feeling more and more isolated and panicked because i hadn't decided to leave I, first of all my entire world was built around church my community my marriage um my, all of my friends all of my belief system and as the kids were leaving i thought i i'm going to do a thing i'm going to let them do their thing but i'm going to stay in mm-hmm. i'm going to i didn't i had let go i think i think of the belief i think i had discarded that but i was going to go through the motions i was going to hell i was going to continue to teach sunday school so they they're having all these individual questions and and you were obviously put in a in a difficult position where um you love your kids and you're wanting to support them on whatever journey that is but then at what point were you did you start to say to yourself okay the questions they're asking are actually very important questions that I maybe need to ask myself well, I'm not proud of it, but I, I I accepted that the beliefs were probably not true. I accepted that there was probably no afterlife. I accepted that I, I, I agreed with one of my girls that it's not a moral system. I'm not mm. proud of it, but I, I love my house and I love my husband. I love my husband. Mm. I love my life. I love my friends and I love my community. And yes, I wanted the children to launch and go live their lives, but I still had I still had the rest of my life to do. You know, I'm only 45 or whatever I was at the time. Yeah. And I made the decision, I I know I can fake this. I can do this. I can go to church, I can sing the songs, I can be happy with my with my husband. I can I can vicariously enjoy my kids living their lives, and I thought I could do that. <laughs> did your husband did that affect his relationship with the kids that a they little bit. To yeah, well, the the gap that exists even now between mm-hmm. the children and their and their dad they they each manage it in their own way and I won't inter, you know I don't interfere in any of that and they have a relationship with him but it's about it's it's very it's not very deep they mm-hmm. because when you when you leave religion and and you're a, a a true believer. Everything changes for you. How you want to live your life, what your morality is, what your sexuality is, all the pieces, what you want to do for fun, what legacy you want to live, all of that changes. And that's so the children are quite different than their father in what they value and how they want to live their mm-hmm. lives. So they they have a relationship with them. It's it's doesn't have a lot of conflict in it, but it doesn't have a lot of conflict in it because they live a continent away from one another and. There's only so far that they can go in their conversation with him. And in the South, we learn to be very um, social so mm. we can talk around it and above it and not go into it. So that's what we do. Yeah, it sounds like they can be civil, um, but there, there'd be so much about their life that they can't even That touch they can't on. share, that they can't talk about, <clears throat> that he would disapprove of, that it makes him uncomfortable, that they don't really want to share with him because they don't want the judgment. You know, they don't. Anyway, it's all part of, it's all part of the package. Do any of your children identify as LGBT? They don't. They don't, but they're all very um, – they're all polyamorous, which is a whole different piece of sexuality. So they each have long-term partners, and they each manage it differently. There's a thousand different ways to be Wait, non-monogamous. They're polyamorous? Well, they're not they're, – let me say it this way. Polyamory is a certain specific word. Mm. They're all ethically non-monogamous. Yes. And so without getting into detail of each one of their mm. lives, they've, they've – They've each managed to do that in the way that works for them and their partners. Wow, yeah, that's isn't it? I know, <laughs> but I know. They. It's I, also fascinating that that's happening uh, that with that level of strike rate among uh, your kids. <laughs> right? I mean, also, I mean, it's interesting that they were all uh, went on this journey of questioning yes. and then leaving, and yes. then and then also on top of that, that they're also ethical norms. And 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 it's interesting when we when we gather together and the children. We're all very close. We we do vacations together, and we would almost rather spend time with one another than anything because of our shared history, and the topic will come up. I mean, and it is – sometimes I just sit there in awe of listening to them because – they just edged away from the amount of baggage that I carried away from it. You know, I still have to deal with it. They were young enough and they discarded it early enough and their minds were open enough that they – it just astounds me how 
I, I think about the, um, I think about what it's like to be to be raised without the impact of religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. What a what a gift that is. And while they had it as children, it didn't imprint on them like it did if you if you marinated in it for the, all of those years. And so yeah. it stuns me when I hear them have their conversation and how wide open they are and how rational they are and how their humanism feeds into the decision making that they do. It must feel pretty cool for you as a mum that you um, you have this close relationship with all of them and you can um, talk openly with them about their lives in a way um, which your your husband can't and, and, you, and you couldn't if you had uh, not left the it's the it's the well. biggest pleasure of my life is mm. that I can that I can talk to the kids that they're willing to share with me sometimes I'm sometimes I'm astounded at what they're willing to share with me how open they are because that's a that's a relic of religious religiosity that I struggle with is uh, you know you're going to talk to me about your sex life and then they talk to me about their sex life and I'm just it's such a privilege it's I mean that seems to be uh, a very common theme among uh, a lot of people that uh, you would come across with recovering from religion that um, once they left whatever um, religion they were a part of, um, they a lot of them have either very, very um, one-dimensional or non-existent relationships with their with their families. Oh, that's that. it's one of the saddest things that we see, Andrew, on, when people come to us at recovering from religion, and and it's a. It's a process. It's not an event. So when they come to us, sometimes, sometimes they've done what I did in early on. They've done the they've done the heavy emotional lifting of discarding the belief, but all of the trappings, all of the external, you have to deal with and you have to put somewhere. And the fractured relationships have to be managed. Mm. You have to face the reality of it. Sometimes you you transition through being sad about that and the grief and the loss to some joy about that because you don't have that burden. And sometimes it's vice versa. So everyone's journey, the, th- the thing that we have learned at Recovering from Religion is everybody's journey is unique. Mm-hmm. Everybody's comes with certain challenges. Um, the The consistency is that it's 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 it takes a while. It's sometimes mm-hmm. protracted. It doesn't happen overnight. You just don't stop believing and then get on with your life and live a different way. It's 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 and for some it's quite arduous. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of differences in everyone's stories, but then there also seems to be that there's a lot of commonalities as well. Oh um, yeah, oh yeah, right. People that have uh, all had um, this, you know, negative experiences of the fallout of of leaving their religion of um, just um, people that that they hold close to their heart just not not being um not having that have well, that and, relationship and and in my in my opinion this is just my opinion i think it i think it takes work to learn how to be a humanist you know humanism is a philosophy it's about it's about human centered compassion and um that doesn't happen overnight in fact in my in my tough year that i alluded to when i well i didn't quite finish that story but when i made the decision i'm going to fake this i'm going to do this i'm going to just go forward that lasted a year and it was a dark dark year for me because i was drinking a lot and making some bad judgments and um i i i didn't know how to be a humanist i didn't know how to figure out my morality all i knew was what everything everything that i had believed in up to that point was gone mm. okay well now what well now i'm going to fake it and it wasn't a very joyful prospect i i i i loved my life and my friends but over the course of a year i was like yeah i love my life my husband my home my friends but but this is this is some bullshit because i can't what was making it harder then when you were you just you felt like you were, li- you were living as a fraud? Watching, for, there was a lot of that. I was watching my children thrive, mm. going off and doing their lives and mm. not being perfect, but – and I was – and I also was thinking about the world from a humanist perspective and I was desperate to talk to other people about <laughs> what this felt like and I was – outraged that I had been misled for so long. I was I was embarrassed that I it took me that many years to question it. There were so many things that fed into that misery, that year of misery, that dark year, because I was not being true to myself. Um, I, I was trying to make it work with my 
with my then husband, who was who, he was also trying, but I, he knew I was faking it. And and so then, what do we do? What do you do? What do you do? I he can't. He's not ready to question. He's never questioned in all of these years since then. He's never questioned. I couldn't go back. I couldn't unsee what I had, what I learned. I couldn't unlearn it, and it was just a mess. As, <laughs> I mean, we simplify <laughs> it these days to calling it FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. But it sounds like when your kids were talking about this, that this life and their adventure, and you had decided that you, these beliefs that you had grown up with weren't. Um, you didn't believe them so strongly anymore or or at all um, that it made you wonder there's this whole adventure of the world that you know nothing about. was passing me by. Mm. It was going to be over. Everything about it, everything, how I wanted to manage my sexuality, how I wanted to live my life, the the effort, and, and, and keep in mind, because when you're a religious person, person that often informs your politics, I was having that transition as well. And I had lived in a marriage where we shared conservative viewpoints. And so that was falling by the wayside too. And so I, so I was, I couldn't find anywhere to go that was, that was similar, that was the same as I was, as I had lived before. Everything was different. You said that this, during this year, when you were faking it, that you were drinking? Uh-huh. Well, <laughs> so, I mean, I'm a drinker, but, uh, but but that was a bad year. That was a bad year. Was, it's, it's escaping. I was so just trying you, to make it. So were having to keep it a secret? Because yes. You, yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> of course. Because you guys, course, you because, guys don't right. drink, right? We don't drink. We don't drink. So, And you never drunk probably in your life. Um, I had always been a bit of a social drinker. Okay. I'd always tasted wine. And you can do that in the Baptist lifestyle. But uh, but drinking and going out and mm. drinking, that was that was completely frowned upon. And it was such want, um, what you find – what I have found when I share this story and other people say, oh, I had a similar experience, it was all about making the pain stop. You know, mm. you know what the effect of drugs and alcohol, it numbs Absolutely. the pain. Right? Yes. Right. And so you were going out, what, to bars, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. So, socially with non-Baptist oh, friends, yeah. I yes. imagine, if you yes. had any of those? Yes, or... I was involved in my um, community's local soccer community, and there were a few. So, so Southern Baptists are conservative, and there are other religions that are not quite as conservative, so they could go out and drink, so I would yeah. go out with them. And that was my portal <laughs> into the world of, yes, medicating with alcohol. I heard you say allude to um, bad decisions during this period. Mm-hmm. What, is, what does a bad decision look like for gay? Well, uh, you know, I had affairs. Yeah. That was a bad decision. Yeah. Um, and, in, and, in, and in conjunction with the drinking, I was driving. Stupid, just stupid, just taking unnecessary risks, but you just don't – I wasn't processing that. I wasn't putting that into perspective. So it was all a big package of behavior. Did you think, I mean, that the affairs were partly due to the fact that you, you had um, stopped believing in the Baptist religion and mm-hmm. um, so it made it a cause a rift between you and your husband because um, – there was the, were, Yes, there was that piece, but there's also the th- – theological piece of what sin is. You know, sin is anything bad that you do, anything that comes between you and your relationship with God. And when I ditch that, first of all, there's no God. And secondly, so what is there? No sin. And as I said, it takes a while to learn to be a humanist. It takes a while to learn to be what what does it mean to be a moral person? I mean, I don't know if you and I could talk right now and come up with 10 things that makes a person a moral person, it's not easy. Right. So you're talking about, you know, if, if there's no hell and there's no such sinning, then what are these rules? What's the point? Right. What's yeah, the point what, of the rules? So, so yes, that yeah. was that was part of it. Yes, was not understanding. There still are rules. There are mm. still rules. There's still um, – you still have to work through I, – I, in my opinion, you still have to work through being a good person. So what does it mean to make a good person? What do you yeah. do in your community that makes you a good person? Well, certainly drinking and driving does not make you a good person. I'm not I'm not judging the the, the drinking parties even as much as I am the high risk behavior of putting other people at risk. Mm-hmm. That's immoral. That's that's not being a good person. I didn't even that's that's humanism 101 and I didn't even know how to think that way. Mm-hmm. I was just so stuck in the mindset and when I ditched the God piece and the sin piece. I spent I spent a little bit of time thinking. Well, like it, there are no rules, and there's no penalty, and there's no price to pay, and we all just it's it's all hedonism. We just do whatever we just, want to, and and that's not exactly right either. No. But so it was a challenge. But you'd gone from yeah. <laughs> One end of the spectrum to the other, right? Clearly, clearly, and then yes. You're like, Hold on, no, neither of these are correct. <laughs> neither somewhere, of these are exactly somewhere, right. That's somewhere right. in the middle, probably, and so I yeah. reached a point. I reached a point. 
coming to terms with myself where I was honest with myself and I said, okay, I cannot do this anymore. So now what do I do? Well, the first thing I have to do is tell him. I have to tell him I'm not going to believe this anymore. And he had told me ahead of time, this is a deal breaker. This is a showstopper. There was no, there was no room for me not to be a believer. And mm. when I told him I was not a believer, that was when he said, then, then he, and he, and he said, I'm going to divorce you. And that's what happened. Yep. I had to tell my parents, they were religious people. They, um, my mother just wept. My sweet little Southern mother just wept. My father called me middle-aged crazy. All you want to do is go out and sleep with people. And I'm like, I didn't even tell him that part of the story. Why, why did you go there with that? Um, my brothers were, you know, just awful, just so judgmental. Uh, and then I imagine all your, your friends all as well. My were fr- you know, awful. they just, they, they just are gone. They're mm. gone. They, um, you know, for a long time, I have defended them through the years because I know what I would have done if I had been in their position. And yet at the same time, we just had this conversation. How long do we hold these people accountable? We always say, well, they don't know any better. They're indoctrinated. They believe life works in a certain way. And so so we excuse them. So when all my friends fell away, I excused them because I understood why they did what they did. As time has gone on, I'm like... Also, they're all going to choose to stay in that community, right? So no one wants to put their head above the parapet. Hell no, right? of course not, because who's going to be the one to do that? Because then you're going to get judgment, you know, laterally from all your other people. Yeah. And what do they want? What? Why do they want to be friends with me now? Mm. Because, you know, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm doing this bad, evil thing, and their, their indoctrination means that they need to – they can pray for me. They could have witnessed to me. They could have talked to me about coming back to Jesus, but they can't. They're 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 uh, they don't want to socialize with me. And I think there's a little piece of that too that they don't like. Uh, that they would not even be able to articulate this. But I'm a, I'm scary because I'm I'm. They don't. There's some rules that they don't love too. And I've told. You're, I've said. I'm walking away from them. Yeah, they label it as your. You can draw them towards wickedness or whatever, right? Right. But the the reality is, it's um, that they're afraid that whatever you've gone towards, they might like it. Right. <laughs> like it a lot. <laughs> yes. Right? And 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 in the years, in the ensuing years, after I struggled through and got myself back together, I I live. A kick-ass life, a joyful life, a wonderful life. It wouldn't change anything about my life. It's awesome. And and that, so I sure, never— But that first hear, couple of years must have been hard as it's shit. It's hard. It was real hard. It was real hard. It was. The, the dark year, however, I consider was the worst year. Once I got through telling my husband, starting the divorce proceedings, awful, telling my parents— it was still as sad as that was, and I spent that was a that was also a sad year. It still wasn't as bad as the dark year because I had hope. I had hope that I was going so to be able to. The dark year was when you were living a lie. Yes, yes, okay. yes yeah. that was the worst. Yeah. And and even though there was sorrow in the following year, and there was a lot of heartache, and my mm. parents were so upset, and my brothers were upset, and my fr- I didn't have any friends. Mm. I didn't have. You know, I I, re- I had to rely on my kids. They were wonderful to support me, but they didn't even live there. They were off in college, and I didn't want to do that to them. I that was not. I just didn't want to parent them that way. I didn't want them to have to take care of mom all the time, whatever. So they must have shit a brick though when they heard. Guess what, oh, mom's yeah, done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, but they were awesome because they had been saying, "Mom, you can't." Because they knew that whole bad year, they mm. were like, "You can't keep doing this," mm. and they were they knew. I wasn't making good choices. And they're like, mom, mm. mom, mom. And I was like, All right. I can stay. I don't have to do this so today. They must, so they were a bit worried about you. So that oh, yeah. must have been a huge relief for them to hear huge that you relief. finally huge relief. gotten the guts to And they to were the supportive. Move. They were so supportive of me. And I did, I don't know how common it is when a middle-aged lady gets divorced, I kind of pulled myself together and started law school. It was a dream that I had always had. So I went to law school. That's and amazing. So what was your, what were you doing for employment more. I was I was a um, you have any as a personal trainer. Yeah, I was doing some personal training, and so I was I had I had already finished my undergraduate work, but I um and and the but the personal training was just an interest that I have, and so I sort of was I was doing that, um loved it, but I but I didn't want to do I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. I didn't think my body would hold up to do that for the next forty years, and I needed to um I needed to be able to generate a revenue that would support me. I didn't yeah. want to uh, – it was a long-term marriage in the way the 
family law works in the United States, I was going to have some support from him. But I really wanted just limited, I wanted um, support long enough to get through law school because I did want to be independent. I did want to support myself. And I was interested in, in practicing law and being a lawyer. That's exciting. Yeah, it was great. So where'd you go to law school? I went to uh, Concord Law School. It's based in California, but yeah. they have an online program. They have an online version. So I was able to do all of it as I was kind of rebuilding my life together. It was great. And I I, I'm a I'm an academic nerd, and so I loved it. Even right. though it was online, in the middle of the night at two mm. o'clock in the morning, I'm listening to the lecture and I'm looking up the cases, and yeah. I, I was a weirdo about that. So loved it. So you were like a duck to water with this. You studied it. You went well. You, went very well yeah. uh, in uh, that that law school. Still requires you. So there's no in the U.S. There's no federal law license. It's all by state. And California allows you to do the law school online, but you have to travel to California to take the bar exam. Yep. So you still have that's the that's the qualifier. Everybody ha- you can graduate from law school and it does you not very much good. You have a law degree, but you can't practice law without the license. The license is bar, what you bar. get when you t- pass the bar exam. Mm-hmm. Right. So I did that and pass it first time. Pass it on the first go. Nice. Yes. And then what happened? And then I started practicing law. I was living in Tennessee at the time. I was still living in the te- you know where I where I, where where we were. And then were you dating at this stage? Yes, I yes. had a honey. Yes, yeah. I had a honey. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was. Um, and then my life took a little bit of a turn because I, uh, as I said, my politics got involved in this. So I ran for state office in Tennessee a couple of times. I ran in twenty sixteen and in twenty eighteen for a local. It's, it's considered local. It was a state senate position. Um, but I ran as a, um, as a Democrat, which is in the minority in the Southeastern states, you know, it's a, it's, uh, Tennessee where I ran has what we call a super majority. So they completely dominated all politics, but I thought it was an important voice. Uh, I feel like I have a pretty big mouth and a pretty thick skin and it set me up to be able to run for office pretty comfortably. I had been out as an and I self-identify as an atheist, mm. and I had been that from the moment that I came out. I was I I said this is the this is the best description of who I am. I do not have a belief in a God or any kind of a high of a supernatural higher power. Is the word that best fit me. Yeah. So it was tough to run as an atheist in a conservative religious area, but yeah. Did you have pushback from? The, oh hell yeah! I yeah. had a lot of pushback. I had a lot of. Um, antagonism from the other party. And of course, I didn't win. Um, and I got the 34, 36% that we all get when we run in the in those areas like that for the vote. But it was a, it was a positive experience. And the positive thing was um, the, the opposing party, the highly religious party, made a big deal of my atheism. I was trying to minimize it, not because I wasn't proud of it, but because I knew it was going to be troublesome. Mm-hmm. But I also knew I couldn't hide from it. So I was trying to f- kind of fit it in the middle. And they came after me based on that. So they put flyers out with my face, with all the I ugly mean, things. They have, um, you know, professional PR teams. They have, and they have no, a, a squillion dollars. Right. Well, they they <laughs> have experts whose job is to go whose right for the time job is. And they what did. Are, and, what are our weaknesses? And they did. Yeah. And they did. So it was a positive experience all in all. We had some uh, pretty positive takeaways. It allowed me to, because because they focused on my on my non-belief, every podcast, every interview, every appearance that came up. And I was able to inform them what it means to be a humanist. I was able to inform them, I, you know, I formerly did have religious beliefs. I don't any longer. Mm. And here's what I believe in. I believe that my neighbor's well-being is on me. I believe that their suffering and their happiness are connected to mine. Mm. And I think our community can be better. I think we can do better if we, you know, all the yeah. all the things. That I can I believe in doing positive things through action, not just going yeah, it's to not the just, church. Yes, yeah, not just them. going to the church and praying for the people that are in that building, which yeah. is which was what I was trying to say. <laughs> yeah. And so you ran twice. I ran twice. I ran in twenty sixteen and twenty eighteen. Did you go any better the second time? Not by a percentage, maybe. I don't yeah. know, probably by a percentage point. But but after that, and this was, you know, I had finished, I had already finished law school. What? I had also connected with recovering from religion. So I had a lot of balls in the air. Mm. Why, why run? Uh, what's the motivation to run if you don't think you have much of a chance of winning anyway? Because you have to start somewhere. Yeah. And, I, and, and one of my takeaways was, um, so I, the image I use is uh, I, I, I have always had a small farm. I always have goats and chickens. And so I, it's, a, it's a farming image. When cattle walk, 
between, you know, walk up, they, they, they lay down the grass, they tramp down the grass. And in, when you um, are doing something for the first time, you're sort of laying down the grass for the people behind you. Mm. And so when you run, and you know you're probably not going to win, someone has to do it. And as I said, I was a good candidate to do it because it because I knew I could take what they dished out. And the second thing was there were people behind me, young people behind me, that I knew with time, eventually, people, you know, younger people, the, the demographic freight train that's building in the United States of young people who mm. are more progressive, who are more open-minded, I knew they were behind me. And I thought if I can do this first row of laying down the grass and getting people used to, guess what? There are non-believers among us, and I'm one of them, and you will be one of them too. And so if I could if I could establish that and open up a pathway for those that came behind me. So that was part of my motivation. I mean, yeah. I mean, it makes sense when you talk about it like that, like just taking a few bullets for the next person. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah, that's what I said. Yeah, and, and I, was, I could do that. I, had, I was in a privileged enough position to be able to sustain that. You talked about the fact that there were people that were critical of you, but you must have had the flip side of people who um, they must have given you a lot of confidence that you had people come out of the woodwork to I support you I had wonderful well. experiences of almost every time I spoke somewhere, someone would come up to me, and, and religion is so prevalent in the area where I was running. They would come up to me and lean in, and I knew exactly what they were going to tell me. They would lean in, I don't believe either, but I can't come out. I can't <laughs> tell my mom. I can't, I'll lose my job. And I could, and it was almost every time I had a young woman come with her two little girls, held them by the hand. They were six and eight, and and she leaned into me and she said, "I'm a non-believer, and I'm raising my children to be non-believers, and I want these girls to shake your hand." Mm. Ah, makes me well up now to think about it. So yeah. yes, I had extremely positive experiences from the minority of people that I was running among. Your kids must have thought it was pretty cool as well. Oh, they? they were so proud. I mean, they all did little cute videos of support. I've got those on my Facebook page. Each one of them, my mom is running because we use them in different kinds of social media and promotion. And so they each one had their own story about mom and, and what, what mom stood for and who mom was and how and why she's motivated to run in this conservative area and what motivates her to do good. And so they were, they were awesome. They were very supportive. What kind of law um, did you go into practicing? Mm -hmm. I practice estate planning, which is wills and trusts and healthcare directives and that kind of thing. Cool. Do you enjoy it? I love it. I just love it. It's what the, drew you to that? Uh, it's not, it's not the contentious part of law. It's not, it's not a big fight. Yeah. You help people with the security of knowing that everything's in place. I, I even my tagline on my website is called love after death so that you love your people. And, and when you get your plan together, you can, I call it sleep, the sleep, the peaceful sleep of the prepared, because you know, and, and, and if you do it right, the people that you leave behind feel your love, even after, you know, you, you love them so much and you work so hard to make life good for them. And then you die and then it's a fucking hot mess. And if you get your, well, yeah, what does it together, look like when, when it goes wrong? When it goes wrong. Yeah. So the, um, I'm not sure how it works here in Australia. The government has a plan for your belongings after mm. your death. If you don't have your own plan. If you don't have your own plan. And if you don't have any problem with the government going, okay, well, now here's the plan. On paper, it might be a sibling that you are fractured from. On paper, it might be, you know, that they don't, if you're not married and you don't recognize your partner, your partner's stuck because your mm -hmm. family can intervene. So, uh, and then uh, the court make, gets to make those decisions. And so if you have a plan, it makes things go so much better. Plus, you do it the way you want to do it. Plus, it, it gives you the opportunity to talk to your beloved people and say, guess what? Someday I'm going to die, and here's what I think I'm going to do. Here's what our plan is. Let's talk about it. Is everybody comfortable with that? Are we all okay with it? Do we all understand what's going to happen? And here's this big book, and it's on the shelf. And when something happens to me, you pull the big book off, and, and that's mama's love for you is knowing that it's going to be taken care of. I love the practice. You see, <laughs> I'm just picturing in my head all these, uh, you know, America, these movies, right, where they, they do the will reading <laughs> and then there's all the gas everybody's like this in the room what am i gonna get it's what going gonna to the get? housekeeper <laughs> yeah, i've watched that movie too yes yes yeah there's great stories about that and there are sometimes surprises and that's when you sit down with somebody mm. and sometimes there are surprises in there and so 
maybe you want to do that to your family. Maybe, you know, maybe you do want to leave some surprises for your family. And sometimes when I work with people, I am surprised by what they want. But that's mm-hmm. their plan, and it's their belongings, and they've worked hard for it, and it's their family. So whatever their plan is, all I'm there to do is to advise them on how this is going to go down and how we can construct it so that that can work. So is this what you're doing for a day job now? This is what I'm doing for my day job. Your day job. Yes. And then you do and then you work with recovering from religion. Yes. Right? Yes. And, and what is that role? How did you get into that part? First? So I'm the executive director of recovering yes. from religion. I got into that role when uh, when I first, as I came out in about, this was about 2011, I had a need after I had my dark year, after I came out, mm-hmm. I had a real need to be around other non-believers. I really wanted the socialization. I just wanted to hear about it. So I went to, a, we have conventions all the time, American Atheist, American Humanist, different different organizations have conventions. And I went to a convention and I met Dr. Daryl Ray, who's the president and founder. Yes, He established Recovering from Religion in just a couple of years prior to that, because he rec- he didn't really have a, he didn't really know what he wanted to do. He just knew there needed to be a space for people to unpack the baggage. They needed some support. They needed some resources. So it was a, it was only a two-year-old organization when I met him. And as I watched it through the years and it had developed um, a, a brilliant idea of a hotline, a telephone hotline, I, I watched what they were doing and I really liked it. And then in 2015, the opportunity was available for me to apply to become the executive director. So I did. And have been what doing it the, ever since. How did the hotline work? You'd call up and say, "Hey, it still I don't believe that, anymore." It still works that way. So we had the, the number is the U.S. number is eight four. I doubt it. That's what the number is, and they literally do that. Absolutely, wow. Andrew. They call and they go. I'm stuck. I don't know what to do. I don't think I believe this anymore. I don't have anybody to talk to. Nobody in my church. I can't talk to anybody. Those conversations, and that's a literal telephone hotline. We have an Australia number. It's right there at our website, but we also have an internet chat. So if an internet chat is your preference, we, you can schedule a call. There's any way we can. We have trained volunteers. Now, this is all peer support. Mm. We have trained volunteers ready to take those calls when you call and go, I'm I'm broken and I'm stuck and and I'm drinking a lot and I don't know how to hide from my problems, but I, I need some help and some resources. It sounds a bit like... Uh... <laughs> Neo getting unplugged from the Matrix. <laughs> that is, you know? you know what? That's not a bad analogy. It is Neo getting unplugged from the Matrix. And, and there are probably people who would rather take the red pill, and yeah. yes, or the blue pill, or whichever one it is. And I imagine, so when when people have go through that, uh, it finally dawns on them and they, they don't think they believe anymore, they must, a lot of them feel immediately so isolated. Um, Completely isolated. The, all the people that they <laughs> would talk to other people that they can't talk to about this. Yes, yes. And and uh, we talk, when I talk about recovering from religion and I try to tell people what the helpline is all about, the telephone and the chat line is all about, people will take anybody wherever they are. Mm. Uh, but, but most of the time they're isolated. The fractured relationships are the heartbreaking ones because yeah. that's the, the, the loss of the belief in this – afterlife, the loss of the belief in this eternal parent, invisible parent that guides your life and has a plan for you. Yes, there's a loss for that, and we need to acknowledge that. But the real relationships, the families that are fractured, the parents that shun their children, the communities that turn their backs on people when you don't believe the way I believe and and they're not going to associate with them anymore, that is heartbreaking. And it's it's devastating for some people. So, you know, some people have to get kicked out of their homes. Mm. They they have to start over. They find themselves without any resources. That, and it runs the gamut, as you would expect. So the hotline is there. The helpline is there to field those calls. And we our, our mission statement is so straightforward. We provide hope, healing, and support to folks who are struggling with issues of doubt and non-belief. So what's your role as an executive director? What do you do? To sort of oversee the whole operation. We have so many moving parts with recovering from religion. Everything is all wrapped around providing that hope, help, and resources, the healing and resources. We have the 24-hour-a-day helpline, which is the internet chat and the telephone number. Mm. We have an online community where some, where they can come in and talk to other people on a similar journey. We have local support groups where they can come together and tell their story and hear other stories. We have a weekend religion recovery retreat. There are so many things that we do. So my job is sort of as an overseer of all of those programs that 
that try to help and try to answer the question, how can we help as you start, as you continue on this journey? I think with that system, I think what, 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 gets the most users is it the hotline or is it um, um web, or, or website it depends or is it During, visiting in, in person so so covid affected us like it did everybody else <laughs> so pre covid we we probably had more in the way of our local support groups because that's when people literally meet in a room and they tell their story and mm. they have a, a, a peer support moderator that leads them through the discussion like an um, aa meeting right a little <laughs> bit like that Hi. a little bit of a, a little bit of a talking about it yes yeah. and it's it's uh, there's some there's some rules everybody's going to you, you know, don't interrupt and you've got to listen to other people's story and we're not going to bash religion. I mean, they can be, they can tell their story, but we're careful not to collectively trash religion. Um, so the support groups get a lot of use, but also during COVID, the helpline use just skyrocketed mm. because people are, they're stuck now. Now, not only are they isolated, but now they're stuck in the home. They don't even, they can't even go out and see any friends. And so we, we, we benefited from COVID. I don't. I don't mean to be. I don't mean to be cavalier about that mm. because I know how serious it was. But um, we benefited by COVID in that not only did we get a lot of clients that reached out to us and 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 access the help that we offer, we had a lot of folks to come in to volunteer because everybody's going stir crazy. And this is and and volunteering for recovering from religion, you can do at your laptop, at your desk, on your own schedule because we're a twenty four hour support. That's cool. Mm-hmm. I saw in Australia they have <clears throat> um, this program called Crime Stoppers, which is <clears throat> like for people to report. Sure. Rat out somebody else. Snitch, snitch on people. <laughs> but they've got like an app now. And I was thinking like who wants to get caught like using a Crime Stoppers app? <laughs> I was thinking that that's probably why you guys, I'm not sure if you guys have an app, but the recovering, you wouldn't have got to get caught if you hadn't left yet, the that's, Recovering from Religion app. Well, and, and we're laughing about that. Shoulder. Yes, we're laughing about that. And, and there are some countries that we have – the client who's reached out to us back out of the system and get some protection for their IP address. You know, you can, you can not disclose your IP address. And so we're laughing about it, but we, we are really careful um, to protect the identity We're you know, we don't track, we don't track our folks in the mm. truest sense of the word. We, we only know this, the general area where they're calling. Yeah. But they, they're, they're looking for a way to, um, have a conversation with you guys and get advice without and while leaving the the smallest fingerprint possible, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. And and um we we try to work around that. If they if they abruptly leave a call or a chat, we understand that. We know what has happened. Someone's walked into the room. Yeah, so we're like, what the hell? So rude. You're like, like, we get rude. it. Rude. <laughs> <laughs> but no, we, we completely understand that. And mm. so uh, that's another thing that we spend a lot of time thinking about, putting ourselves in the position of the client. They're, you know, what what else can we do to help them? Mm. Yes, maybe having – It's when we opened it up, when we opened up an internet chat, we did it for a weird reason. It wasn't that we were trying to go global. Mm. We were trying to give people who couldn't find the privacy to have a phone call an option. So we thought, oh, let's do an internet chat. Well, when we did that, we went – worldwide and that was awesome and that's growth but that was not even our that was not even the motivation behind it it was because we recognized sometimes they couldn't carve out the space or the time to even make a a, a vocal phone call so yeah wow so yeah it, it yeah. helps to have a few different options there. oh as many options as possible you can schedule a phone call you can there's just a lot of ways that we try to provide help i saw on your <clears throat> i think on twitter that you um uh, a woman of many interests. Right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> you, you know, an iron woman? Uh, I have done, yes. In fact, uh, my first iron iron person, my first iron race that I ever did was in New Zealand. I had traveled to Lake Taupo. I did not complete that race. I had a struggle in the water, mm. so I didn't, don't get to count that one. But I eventually got my Ironman in, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you're doing that. I saw uh, also that you're a bee. Are you, are you an active beekeeper? Yes, I I have bees. I have bees at my house. I have I, that goes along with the farming piece. I have about five acres in Oregon. What's the trick to keeping bees? Oh my gosh, the tr- there's no trick to keeping bees. I'm just mm. fascinated by mm. observing them. The honey is the least important of the whole thing. Mm. I, you know, they're pollinators, and so if you're concerned about the environment, yeah, having so po- that big mast. Uh-huh. If you yeah. well, you do. If you it, um, there are certain times when you want to wear that. If you're just doing an adjustment, a small adjustment to the hive, bees are not out to get you. You know, you, you do you smoke or something to mellow them out. You have a smoking device mm. that and it calms them down. Mm. It kind of gets them a little disoriented. So if they're agitated over some reason, you know, sometimes. 
too high of a temperature or a change of a queen or if you're going to put another what's called a super onto the boxes. There's different things that agitate them. So there's times when you need the gear and the smoke and there's times when you just – if you're making a small tweak or whatever, it's not a big deal. They're fascinating creatures. My dad was a beekeeper was like he? long before I was born oh. when he first started, started dating my mom. And I, <laughs> I think my mom was like, look, if we're going <laughs> to – this, be is a thing. A, this is a deal breaker. <laughs> if we're going to be a thing, you got to get rid of the bees. So. Oh shoot! Oh yeah, I love them. I love them. But I, but I, <laughs> I, I'm a nurturer, and so I enjoy, mm. I enjoy watching them. They're they are so um, they're such an elaborate, complicated community. You you know they do the dances where they show each other where the. It's just they're just interesting creatures, no question. They're fascinating creatures. So you live on a what, on a farm now mm-hmm. in Oregon. Mm-hmm. It's five and, acres. And, yeah, I consider it. I consider it a farm. They're all freeloaders: the goats and the chickens. What else? Yeah. What else you got? Goats, chickens. What I got else? goats and chickens, and then I have cats and dogs, and then I have the bees. So it's. Gonna, I I used to have cat when I lived in Tennessee. I had a little bigger farm, and I had bigger animals. Had donkeys and cattle. I I I'm I'm really kind of past that. I don't really want to do that anymore. But I love having the, the you goats. Pa- you clear the, the donkeys and the cattle. Uh, the big the big well, animals. The big animals I, they're yeah. just a lot of work, and uh, you know the. The goats serve a purpose. They clear the countryside. You know, they keep the blackberries down. And then the chickens, of course, give you Something like a cheap lawnmower. Yeah, something mm. like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love them too. Yeah. And a big a big garden and that whole lifestyle just appeals to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when, as a lawyer, do you have to go into an office or can you just work from home? I do everything from home. Yeah, that's okay. That's yeah. pretty cool. Sometimes if I'm going to do a... So when you when you do the estate planning the way that I do it, I, you get really involved in your clients' lives because they're telling you every intimate detail about their finances and they're asking the you for guidance. And, yeah, where are, yes, where the money's go, where the money's going, where the money is, and so you have to. Um, it creates a real sense um, of intimacy with them, mm. and so so and I like that. I want them to feel that way. So when I meet with them, for them to sign their paperwork, and we are going to do the book. We even do a little bit of a legacy interview where they tell I, – I record them telling their favorite childhood memory and what it was like. And it's all it's all part of the package of the love that they're showing for their loved ones after they're gone. So even the little thumb drives goes into the big book. Mm-hmm. That's the, the book on the shelf that when, when, when shit goes sideways yes. and when it goes down, we get the book out and everything's taken care of. That's cool. Yeah, it's a cool thing. It's a really cool thing. That must be a relatively unique piece of the puzzle that you're um, – yeah, There are some people that practice that way. Yeah, everybody individualizes how they practice, but it's just it's just what's worked for me. Do you think – do you ever look back at, um, you know, you've got all these passions and interests and, and this active life and you're d- doing law um, and just think how none of this – in another – pathway of your life none of this would have come to pass i think about it all the time mm. i think about it all the time and um i i i i want as as the executive director of recovering from religion i i want people to see i i want to be respectful of their journey and i want them to understand that i know it's not easy i know that there's going to be there's a loss when you lose your faith you lose the security of thinking you have it figured out the ground is not stable for you. You lose – you even lose when you drop the concept of God. You lose that love. You think you are beloved. You think God created you. You think God sent his son to die for you. You lose that. So so I don't want to be – I don't want to seem cavalier to people on their journey, but at the same time, I want them to see that life is kick-ass. And, and, and leaving religion, you can have a happy – healthy, productive, joyful life with no religion at all. And so I'm conscious of being visible. I'm visible in my position as an executive director, and I don't ever want to be fake and Christian-y, which is what I did in the other life, with everything's perfect all of the time. Mm. I don't want to quite go that far, but I want them to see that owning your own life and owning your own individuality and who you want to be and what legacy you want to leave behind is a joy all on its own that you don't get in religion. So so I think about it all the time about what my life is like. Do you think it would have happened uh, this 
way if you didn't have kids and pesky kids oh, wow. that ask too many questions, right? <laughs> Bratty kids trying to. No, I don't know. I don't know who's to who's to say. Mm. Maybe someday. I, I feel like I would. I would like to think that I would have figured it out because I would like to think I'm a smart enough person to go. This is just shit. This is stupid. This mm. isn't reasonable. It's it's anti science. I mean, uh, right now, and I'm careful not to. I'm not very careful right now. I'm careful not to bash mm. religion because I get why. I get where everybody is, but I would like to think I would have figured it out. I don't know. I yeah, don't maybe know. it just accelerated the timeline. It probably, um, I'm sure it accelerated the timeline, no question. And I think the amazing piece for you was that when when you did leave, um, while obviously it was hard with your immediate family um, uh, and friends, but you, you had the, your kids as a as a network oh, I, um, that was so supportive, right? No question, and no so question. That- and when I and when people call into the to the helpline, and you know you you start to f- they they share with you details of their life, and people who have no one, and people some I I tell you I, I have a little piece of jealousy when people do it to get when a couple does it together because mm. they have each other. Yeah. And, to me, that was a big loss. It was a big loss. I still care deeply for the man who was my husband. I still deeply care for him. And so I have a bit of sadness. But sometimes when they tell you their story, and and if you can identify they have this support person and this support person, you know what? That's what we're going to build on. That's enough to, you know, you need to draw on that. And and recovering from religion support groups are there. And so even in the even though in the beginning you don't know these people and you're sharing your story, deep, profound friendships are sometimes made out of these support groups. You must be familiar with the instances to that point of people that leave, but they just they feel so isolated that they just they go back. Um, uh, that can happen. That can happen, and and sometimes it's even a go back and go back and go back and go back. It's back and forth for a long, long time. Everybody's journey is different, and mm. and and I understand. There are circumstances where I think people should stay, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you what those are. You know, if it's a if you're a if you're a young adult and you're dependent upon your family for your education, mm. you may be eighteen even. You may be able to make your own decision, but your entire education depends upon your parents funding it. I would. We don't give a lot of adv- we don't give advice on the helpline. That's yeah. not our job. We're not counselors. We're peer support. Mm. But as we talk them through their options, that would be one of the times when we would want them to think seriously about the cost of leaving. Tell, letting them know, letting them identify for themselves. Life, life will go on. If after your, you know, after your college education, when you're not dependent upon your parents for your education anymore, you will have the freedom to be able to make your own decisions. And while, as I said, we don't give advice, those would be circumstances where it probably would behoove the young person to play the game for as long as they can to get as much education out of the family as they can. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a uh, kind of... It's a spectrum, isn't it? There's no uh, right. There's no black or white. That's uh, right. That's right. That, that they might be <clears throat> better off continuing with those questions while also um, helping set up their own future as much as possible. That's right. That's mm. right. And that's and that's why there are circumstances when we completely understand somebody not leaving. We oh. we get it. We've all been there. It's not easy. Yes, it's going to cost you. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's so much better on this side. But they mm. don't know that yet. And it's not my job. To tell them maybe their life won't be better on this side, you know that's not. It's, every story is not happily ever after in leaving religion either, because mm. life happens. That's the strength of not being religious. Life is going to happen to you whether you're a religious person or not. So sometimes sure. tragedy befalls you, even if you, you know, even if you don't have religion. So it, life doesn't work that way. Are you saying if you're 18 and you've got you know not enough education, no real skills, and you're also isolated from everyone, then suddenly it can make life a lot harder. It can make it even harder than it is, yes. And so so sometimes that would be a time when we would want the young person to consider seriously what the options are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how, how often do you get to catch up with your kids now? Oh, all the time. I talk to my kids every day. That's cool. And I live, and, and that was one of the things that, was the impetus for me to leave Tennessee and relocate out in the Pacific Northwest in the U.S. because all my kids are out there. And so, and as I said, we, we get, we're close and we get along and we do vacations together and weekends together. And um, the, the kids are, ju- I just was so fortunate. The kids are just great kids. Their partners are great partners. We really enjoy each other's company. So yeah, I get to see them a whole lot more now. It sounds like you 
live uh, a, a happy life now, like much happier than um, compared to that, that horrible year when you were trying to live a life. Compared to the horrible year and even compared to the years prior to that when it wasn't horrible but it was restrictive and controlled. Mm-hmm. And I look at people living a religious life now. Can, can people live a joyful life within religion? Yes, and there are personalities that do better than others. Yeah. Um, some of us don't do well with authoritarian, you know, commands and controls, and some of but us some do, do, and some do. Mm. Honestly, some do. Mm. Some people. That's what. That's just nature. That's just the nature of different personalities. I, I remember talking to Naomi Mura, and she said that one of the things she enjoyed was just like them telling you everything you meant to do. The regimented life can makes be quite... makes it makes it easy <laughs> if you're that kind of a person. When, if you don't question when it, suddenly you got the freedom to do anything. You're like, oh god, what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> Hell, I got to make my own decisions. I've got it. Yes, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, I, yes, yes. So we. That's why we have so much compassion for people whenever they're stuck in religion. Mm. So it's not terrible for everybody. And I'll tell you because of the male-dominated nature of a lot of Abrahamic religions, it isn't as hard for men. They're on the top of the food chain. You know, they don't no, have – they're not restricted from doing this, and, they're, and they get to tell everybody else what to do, and they get to have a, you know, a, a, a spouse that serves them. There's mm. a lot of benefit to that. So – so it's not as it's not the same for everybody, mm. and it, and religions are not the same. Some are far more repressive than others. We know that. What's the first piece of advice you give to anyone when they, if they say to you um, that they're having doubts about their religious beliefs? Well, the, I have a cheating answer, and that's to contact recovering from religion because <laughs> these are tr- people. Trained volunteers, most of whom have an experience similar to yours, mm. that have some resources and some suggestions and some um, comfort to offer you. All right. So well, imagine you're on the hotline one day, and then they, uh-huh. they call. Then, then what do you say? Well, um, we would have a conversation, and I would ask them. I would ask. I would do a lot of asking questions. Mm. I would be sensitive to where they are. I would try to listen between the lines or read between the lines if it's an internet chat to see exactly what they're saying. I would tr- I would try. I would hope that I would try to see where they are. What is it that they're asking for? Do they do they just need a little bit of um, support and encouragement, or do they need resources? You know, our resources tab is thousands of resources, podcasts, and books and things. And so maybe I would say, here's one of. Maybe they're struggling with. Yeah, I'm a I'm not in church, but I'm struggling with how to raise my kids to be moral kids. That's a common secular person's issue. We all want to do the right thing by raising our kids. So, I would listen to hear what their question is if they're deep deep in religion. I would try to find out where they are with it. Tell me what your tell me what made you have your doubts. What are you doubting? And why are you doubting that? You know, what ev- evidence do you see that's made you reconsider something that you used to believe in? So, and that is all we when we train our volunteers, we train them from top to bottom in exactly what you've just asked. It's how do you deal with a person when they call in and you have no idea where they are and where they're coming from. So, that's all part of the process. I think, I mean, it's similar to doing a podcast, right? You get sure. people to start talking and yeah. then the questions start to present themselves. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's a conversation. It's just a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So what's next for you? What's one of the things that uh, – are you going to run for office again? I might. If my community needs me, I'll run for office. I haven't done that in, you know, on the West Coast. Um, I did that in Tennessee. But if my community, if that's where my community needs me, I will do that. I'll continue to do my my law practice. I love that. The reason I'm in Australia is we're continuing to develop, to develop RFR. You know, we mm-hmm. want to make as many uh, features of RFR available to the folks in Australia as we have in the U.S. So that's part of what I'm here for. Are the problems that you uh, talk to people about regarding uh, religion and, and, and questioning their faith um, any different in Australia and America? It's uh, We're pretty close. The, the two cultures are pretty close. The, the, the issues seem to be aligned because the religions are aligned. Mm. You know, it's yeah. Christianity, it's um, Jehovah's Witness, mm. it's Catholicism. We, we've, you know, we, we can cover all of those. So they seem to be pretty similar. I haven't noticed a drastic difference in the culture. Are there any specific denominations that seem to be the, the draw the most people towards? Well, I'll room tell from you religion? that uh, the ones that um, the ones that have a philosophy, and I'll put two in the category: the Mormons and the ex, and the JWs, mm. who's who have a theology of um, the word is disfellowshipping or shunning, where 
part of the teaching is to tell the people that are still in the religion to completely turn their backs on the ones that have left. Those are tough ones. My family didn't turn their back on me. They were disappointed in me. They were critical of me, but they didn't do the shunning or the disfellowshipping, as it's called. Well, I mean, it seems pr- pretty close, not that far off. I mean, yeah, your friends didn't want Well, my, yes, yes, maybe not far off with friends, but but family is a little bit of a different story. Yeah. And they were not – my family was not commanded. They're commanded to continue to pray for me. They're commanded to continue to witness to me, but they are not commanded so, biblically to, yep, to turn their back. Yeah, and so those, those cases – um, we've, as I've been in Australia for the last couple of weeks, I've heard story after story after story, and the and the ones that lose everything with their family turning their backs on them, those are particularly heartbreaking. It must make you um, feel proud to be working with an organization like that, which can help to support people through what is such a difficult time in their life. Right? So, you, so you heard me say how much I love my law practice and yeah. I really enjoy my law practice and it's, and it's very gratifying and I love helping people. But I, but I always say this, the work that I do with recovering from religion is the most gratifying thing I've ever done. It's the most um, – because I have sensed that sense of desperation and isolation. You felt it. I yeah. have felt it. it. It is so personal to me and, and – we have worked so hard at at establishing a method to try to help people that it's effective. We're we're having success. Not that we're trying to pull people out of religion, but we're trying to give them a place to ask their questions. We're trying to give them resources when they're doing it. We respect their journey. We respect where they are. And because we do it that way, we're not counting ticks on the wall of how many people we've deconverted. It's just we're trying to help people on their journey and it's the best thing I've ever done. Quality over quantity. Oh yeah. Oh yes. And it's been and I and I share that the volunteers share with me that they're experiencing that same thing too. So we feel like we have it pretty dialed in on being able to offer support. We can we we support, we support, we support and we don't but we don't push. So it's that's a that's threading a needle, I think. And we've sort of got that dialed in. Any more marathons coming up? Um, I'd do another one. I'd do yeah. another one. Uh, several years ago, my one of my kids, my second son, said to me, Mom, I, um, I want to train to do an Ironman with you before you get too old. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, honey. Okay. And we did. We did. We did oh, do cool. it together. And now my grandson's like, calls me Gammy. He said, Gammy, do you think you got another Ironman in you? Because now he's 18. And so now he's, because you can't do an Ironman until you're 18. Mm. Now he's 18. He's like, could you do one more? And I said, yes, I could do one more. So yeah, that, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. I'll do another one of those. Are there any bodies of water near Oregon for you to discuss me? It's on the coast. Oh, is it? Okay. I don't know. Yeah. And, and you <laughs> Sorry, know. Sorry, I didn't know my US geography well enough. <laughs> That's okay. Most of the races are not in the ocean. No, you just do it in a lake. Yeah, there's a plenty enough bodies of water to find. And and sometimes you do a destination race. You, mm. It's not that you do a race in your area. You go to a place to do the race. Yeah, so, cool. yeah. My family goes, I have a daughter in Las Vegas, and there's a Las Vegas half marathon. It's actually a full marathon and a half marathon right down the strip. They close it to cars, and you go right down the strip. And at, you do it in the evening, so it's called strip at night. Because we're funny, yeah. But there's you know forty thousand runners, and so the family gets together and does that. We've done that one for years. So do all your kids live in the U.S.? Uh huh. Yeah, cool. Mm-hmm. And they live close to where I am. All of them live close to where I am in in the North Pacific Northwest. Nice. Yeah, it's great. Well, Gail, thank you very much for coming in. I, I can't think, tell you uh, what a delightful conversation this has this been. Has been great. Thank you so much. No worries at all. Absolute pleasure. Uh, this is about another episode of Shit's Gone Sideways. It's gone sideways. 